Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode, I talk with Claire Schlemmy, co-founder and CEO at Renewal Mill, a brand focused on upcycled cookies, baking mixes, and flowers. Claire talks about her journey from founding an organic juice company, recognizing the large amount of food waste produced in that process, and seeing an opportunity to reuse or upcycle these byproducts. She talks about the importance today's consumers are putting on sustainability as part of their purchasing criteria. And she also talks about her journey from finding a product to focus on, figuring out the manufacturing process, and taking these products to market online and through retail partnerships. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hello, Claire. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. How are you doing? Hey, pretty good. Pretty good. I, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on with me, and I look forward to digging into Renewal Mill a little bit. You bet. You bet. Hey, to, to kick things off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my background is mainly in environmental uh, management. So I have my, my master's in environmental management, and I was very focused on sustainability, primarily from an energy angle at first. So I was um, really interested in um, carbon financing and doing work with renewable energy. Um, and it was in graduate school that I actually came to understand just how important our food system is in, in the whole sustainability puzzle and um, creating a better, a better planet. And it seemed like an area that at the time seemed a bit overlooked. Um, like I said, there was a lot of focus on, on energy, which of course is an important piece of fighting climate change and, and moving towards a, a better future. But the food system also was was something that just really intrigued me, and I thought there was a lot of opportunity there. Um, so it was something I was thinking about when I started a juice company in Boston. So I was a co-founder of the first organic juice company in Boston, and it was it was my first foray into food. It was a really fun experience. I just totally fell in love with um, with the food space and feeding people and sourcing these great ingredients from um, you know New England farmers. But one of the things I saw in that position was actually how inefficient some of our food production can be. So we have a lot of the pulp, that fruit and vegetable pulp that would be left over from juicing. 
and it just seemed like a real opportunity. And, you know, I was thinking about um, kind of how, how I had learned that the food system was so important. And this was kind of a light bulb moment for me that, hey, these byproducts actually represent a really great opportunity to create a better food system and to create a more closed loop system and a circular system for how we produce our food and, and how we utilize all those resources that go into growing all that food. So I kind of came at food, um, you know, fell into food when I, when I started the juice business and brought my sustainability background to it. And that's kind of all, all, all rolled up into how I ended up at Renewal Mill. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a, a blend of a couple of your, your passions. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, what do you think sparked, you know, your, your interest in the environment and sustainability and uh, what continues to feel it today? Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, certainly I, I had a childhood that was just spent outside. I grew up in Northern California, um, in Sonoma County. So it was just a wonderful place to be a kid and be playing outside. We had, you know, the redwoods and beaches and we were very close to mountains and, um, and that's definitely what started me um, on the path to really love being um, in nature and being outside and really, really just, um, you know, finding that nature was recharging for me. So it was something that I'd always been interested in. Um, I would say that, that it was more uh, kind of recreationally that I, was, that I was interested in it. I never thought of it necessarily as like a career path or, or something that could be part of my career path until I graduated from, from college. So I was, you know, I studied biology in college and I definitely was interested in the science side and the environmental side. I ended up actually having cancer in my early twenties, which was unexpected a bit, you know, obviously a, a, a big change and, and quite a big thing to go through when you're a young adult. I can only imagine. Yeah. 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 But it definitely gave me time to kind of stop and think about what did I really want to do? And what really was I passionate about? And that is when I decided to go back to school, um, go back to forestry school and get my master's in environmental management, because that truly was something that was just so special to me. And, and it was quite a moment to realize, oh, I, I can actually do that in my, in my daily life, right? This isn't something that just has to be going hiking on the weekends. I can actually bring my passion for sustainability and for protecting the environment to the, to the job that I choose. Um, so that's, that's what led me back to school and, um, and then into, into the sustainability field. Oh, great. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've never, you know, ran an organic juice business, but you know, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were pretty into juicing. And yeah. if anybody wants to get a feel for food waste, you know, yeah. buy a juicer and start <laughs> juicing every day. Oh my goodness. I was so surprised how much pulp you end up with, you know? Totally, totally. It, absolutely. And there's just, and it's like, there's so much nutrition in that pulp. And there are some like great things that you can do with it. Um, at the juice business that I started, you know, we would, we would make juice pulp muffins and chips and kind of, you know, try to find ways to, to reuse it or, or, you know, now we use the term upcycle it, but it's challenging because there's so much of it. And that really isn't the focus of what you're doing when you're a juice business, right? Sure. And that's exactly why we saw a space for companies that upcycle like Renewal Mill because uh, you really do need somebody with extra bandwidth to be able to come in and build the bridges that funnel these byproducts back into the food supply chain. Understood. Yeah. Tell us just a little bit about um, upcycling, you know, for, for those that may be listening that have never, you know, heard about 
the term and, and why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny because, you know, the term is um, trending. It's something that we're hearing more and more now, but it's actually a very old concept, right? So it basically means not having waste, utilizing everything that, um, that you start with. Uh, so finding, finding a valuable way to use something that previously didn't have value. So we, for example, like our, our first product that we're upcycling is the pulp that comes out of soy milk production. So it's the soybean pulp that's left over, very nutrient dense, lots of fiber and protein. And in the current production system in the U.S., there's a great opportunity to utilize this, this raw source of okara as a new ingredient because there, it would otherwise go to waste. But if we step back like 200 years to somebody who is making soy milk at home, say in Japan, that pulp would never have been something that would have gone to waste. It would have been used because you were much closer to that process of purchasing the soybeans. You don't want that to go to waste. You bought it, so you're going to use all of it. Um, and you also have the the incentives to use it because you're um, you know you're a person in a home that has maybe the time and the means to use it um, and the and the drive to use it because you have people that you want to feed. So it's definitely not something that's new, but it's something that um, has become harder to do with the way that our food system has developed. So there's, uh, you know, the incentives are more in place for folks to think just about, okay, this is my end product. How do I get there as cheaply and as quickly as possible? And if there's extra stuff that's produced along the way, it's easier for me to just trash it than to find a way to use it. So upcycling is really about finding those streams of food that are currently seen as waste or not having value and bringing them back into market in a way that, that has a lot of value. Understood. And so was it your experience uh, at the juice company that initially introduced you to this uh, concept or was it something else? Absolutely. No, it was definitely, um, it was definitely through juicing that I first saw like, Ooh, this feels kind of uncomfortable that we're, you know, that we're throwing so much of this away and, and not just that we're throwing it away, but you know, when we throw that food away, we're also essentially wasting all of those resources that went into growing the fruits and vegetables to begin with. Um, so it felt very inefficient from that point of view too. And then kind of a third problem with it was that, you know, since we paid a lot for, you know, organic and mostly local produce, but we were wasting a good chunk of it, the price point for what's left, the juice, is fairly high to cover the cost of the inputs that we're using. Right. And so we're essentially ending up with, you know, fairly inaccessible nutrition um, and wasting a lot along the way. So it was that disconnect that was kind of hard to sit with. And that's what was sort of rattling around in my mind when I met the owner of a tofu factory. And we just immediately bonded when we started talking about these byproducts and our byproduct problems, um, because he had this very similar problem with his okara. And, you know, making soy milk, which is the first step to making tofu, is it's analogous to juicing, right? You're kind of squeezing the soybeans, you're kind of mashing them up, squeezing them out to get the soy milk. And then you have that pulp that's left over. And the the efficiency gains from upcycling were just remarkable. And that was kind of the first thing that drew me in uh, to this opportunity with Okara since about 40% of the soybean mass, so when the soybeans like arrive on, you know, at the tofu factory, about 40% mm-hmm. of that weight is going to end up being in tofu. 
60% of it is going to end up in the Okara, which is currently, you know, which, you know, previously didn't have a place in our food system, um, even though it's a fantastic ingredient in original superfood. So was it just discarded or, or what, what did people typically do with it before? Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple things that somebody might do, and it sort of depends on what's, what's around the tofu factory. So um, it can be used as like a filler feed for animal agriculture. So um, farmers may come and pick it up for, for free. That's one way to offload it. If the tofu factory has enough kind of like space around it, it can be used as like spreading on fields, essentially like a composting option. Um, but there are places, there are some facilities in the U.S. where the the only option is to haul it off to have it go to landfill, which is obviously the worst option for it, given that, you know, we get additional greenhouse gas emissions from that methane when it's decomposing in a landfill. Sure. So it's it's any of those three, but obviously much more efficient and much better if we can get that nutrition back to people. Yeah. And, and let's uh, double click on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, nutritionally, how does it compare to, to other ingredients? Yeah. So it's it's a total powerhouse for fiber. So it's got a ton of fiber, very, very low net carbs um, per, per serving. Um, it also is a good source of protein as well. It's naturally gluten-free, so um, so it's not going to function the same way you would expect a wheat flour to, but it does function similarly to other alternative and gluten-free flours that you may already be familiar with, like coconut flour or almond flour. And those are, those are kind of the ways that we utilize it as well. So we use it in our gluten-free formulations and also use it to um, create kind of entirely new, new products as well. Let's uh, maybe go back in time just a little bit. So you uh, have become a little bit more aware of the environmental impact of our food system and just the vast amount of waste. Mm -hmm. And then um, you end up uh, running into or meeting the owner of a tofu company. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yep, exactly. Okay. So how does this, you know, lead one, you know, one step to the next into you deciding to, to found Renewal Mill? Yeah. So th the first thing I did when I heard about Okara was, was get my hands on some, because I was like, this, this sounds really interesting, but let, let me see what this tastes like. Right. Um, so I, I was in Connecticut at the time. I found a, a wonderful little tofu maker there who just gave me like a big bucket of his, of his Okara. Cause he was, you know, he, he didn't have a use for it. And just played around with it a lot. And it, it did not take very long for me to just totally fall in love with it. There was just, it was so versatile in terms of things you could do with it. So much nutrition in there. And what's kind of, kind of particularly cool about Okara is that because it has this pretty rich culinary history in East Asia, it's not a totally brand new you know, product by any means there's already kind of a starting point in terms of how this can be used because folks have been using it in traditional recipes for a long time. And not only that, but it's actually, you know, it, it already has a, a health halo around it in, um, for, for folks who are already familiar with it in, in Asia. And it's been the subject of several, um, you know, turns out I've you know looked it up um, as I started playing around with it. And it turns out it's been a, a subject of several peer reviewed health studies looking at the health benefits of it. So we know that it's great for heart health. It's great for weight maintenance, all these great things that have been actually proven to be associated with it. So it wasn't even you know, it wasn't an issue of starting from scratch here. It's like we already know that this is a really wonderful ingredient. It's just unknown to us here. And so that that was where I kind of that was truly the moment, I think, where I was like, there is absolutely something here. 
And from that moment where we decided to actually start a company um, around this concept of upcycling and start with Okara, we started looking into what else is out there. You know, it's obviously like it can't just be juice and soy milk, right? And of course, sure enough, we realized there's just billions of pounds of these different byproduct streams that go to waste every year. Um, so then we suddenly saw that this, this was not even, you know, a cool sort of niche opportunity, but it was a much, much bigger, um, opportunity in the, in the food system. And so besides Okara, what other byproducts are, are there that you came across? Yeah, so many. Um, and, and actually one of the things that was really interesting too, when we, when we started was that, um, really realizing that these byproducts is, you know, we're, we're, I've mostly been focused on how cool they are from like a consumer point of view, right? Like they're so nutritious and they're really great. And these new food sources from a manufacturer's point of view, they're a headache um, because you produce a lot of them. You kind of saw from that tofu example, I mean, that's a huge amount of um, product that you're, you know, 60% of that soybean mass, that's a huge amount that you have to deal with. And so what we found was that when we started, um, you know, when we started the business, we, we got a lot of inbound requests from manufacturers doing all sorts of different types of food production that were like, hey, we've got a problem. Like, can you come fix our byproduct? Um, so that really showed us, you know, there was waste coming from certainly any, any it, it's usually coming from like that first step of processing when you bring a grain or a fruit or vegetable in from the field. So um, uh, the potato skins that are popped off before potatoes go on to further processing, uh, the tomatoes that are, that are smashed up and left after tomato processing, um, the olive oil, when you press olives to make olive oil, there's that pumice that's left over that's, um, that goes to waste similar to grapes that are, um, that are made, you know, that are used for wine any sort of oil production where you're, where you're pressing, um, seeds like sunflower seeds, uh, or, or if you're doing corn oil, the corn that's, um, that's pressed, all of those cakes that are left over are also all, all byproduct streams as well. So your, your initial, um, product was, was a flower. Is that what you had in mind at the time? And then how did, how did you go about finding, you know, somebody to, to manufacture this and actually bring it into a consumable, you know, flower that somebody could use? Yeah. So, so one of the things that we focused on first was, okay, how do we, we, we love this byproduct. We think this is great. We shouldn't even call it a byproduct, right? It's a new, new ingredient. Sure. How do we, how do we get this to market? And the way that the Okara comes out of the soy milk production process is as a fairly wet pulp. Um, so it's prone to spoilage because obviously it's very moist. Um, and we knew that we, as, as this bridge builder in the space, um, having that shelf stability was something that was really, uh, was going to be really important for us. So the first thing we did was put together the production process that we wanted to utilize to turn that pulp into a shelf-stable ingredient. And the one that made the most sense was to dry it and mill it to create a powder or a flour. Um, There's some variability around that. We can obviously mill it to different particle sizes to create different, you know, kind of more of like a, a coat, you know, like a breading or coating all the way to like a really fine flour that you might incorporate into a beverage. Sure. But generally that, that idea of dehydrating and milling was something that we, um, kind of hit on early on as a, as a 
most straightforward way to turn this into a shelf stable ingredient. Um, so yeah, so then we, you know, we worked with the tofu manufacturer that I had met that had inspired, um, inspired me to even look at Okara in the, in the first place. Um, and we, I moved out to Oakland, which is where they're based and started, um, started figuring out the production and how we would actually be producing out of their facility. We had a pilot um, production system go into their facility a couple years ago, which is when we first were actually able to um, produce Okara flour in a way that we could sell it um, and start to use it to make products. So that was very exciting. Um, we, uh, we actually found a fantastic product developer who works with us um, to turn these flowers into delicious food. And, um, she is Alice, her name is Alice Medrich. She's a five times James Beard award-winning cookbook author. It was such a, it's such a lucky chance meeting with her, but she is really an expert in the baking space and had just published a, a cookbook all around alternative and gluten-free flowers. Um, so she was very much, um, working in this space and we kind of approached her and said, Hey, have you thought about these upcycled flowers, which is a unique and very special subset of this gluten-free and alternative flower movement. Um, and she was intrigued. And I think from, um, from a, a bake, baker's perspective and a chef's perspective was, was very curious to, to try it out and, and take on that, that task and challenge of um, kind of learning how to use these ingredients for the first time. Um, so that was how we actually produced our own our own products that we make with the flour. And then we also sell the flour to other food companies who are interested in, you know, any of the myriad benefits that come with these upcycled flours, whether it's, um, you know, it might be the sustainability story, but some, some folks are actually just interested in it from the nutritional standpoint as well. Sure. Sure. And so I'm, I'm interested in your initial go to market. So did you, um, did you launch and start actually selling the, the flour or did, was it only when, when you had the, the different mixes, you know, like your chocolate chip and brownie mix and sugar cookie mix? Um, how did you initially approach this? That's really funny. So it was, it was quite an organic development of our first product. So our very first product is our ready to eat cookie. So it's a, it's a vegan chocolate chip cookie that we make using the Okara flour. And, you know, when we first started out, we were really focused on the ingredient side of things and, and, um, you know, finding folks that were excited to use this ingredient in their own food formulations. Um, and we would go around to different events and, ex you know, we'd exhibit and be at trade shows and whatnot. Um, and we'd be, you know, singing the praises of this <laughs> Okara flower. And of course, in, in food, the first thing anyone wants to know is like, well, what does this taste like? Um, so we learned very quickly that we needed to have samples with us, even if we weren't at the time, like a retail, you know, producer of, of packaged food or, or retail food. Um, so we, we formulated our first, this first cookie. Um, and at that point we started getting a lot of people commenting like, Hey, this is really great. So where do you guys sell this? How do I buy this? Um, and so that's when we were like, you know, this actually makes a lot of sense for us while we're building the, um, pipeline for getting this into the food system in bigger quantities as an ingredient to other food companies. It makes sense for, I mean, we can introduce this now. We already are with these cookies. Um, let's, let's, let's build up this side of the business. Let's build up the, our own product line. 
Um, so we started by bringing those cookies to market first. Um, we found a great home for them in office snacking programs. So that was our, our largest customers were folks oh, that distribute to offices. Yeah, in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, uh, when COVID happened a year ago, we pretty much lost that uh, sales channel overnight um, when offices shut down. So, um, so that was a moment for us to really pivot, and we moved to e- you know really focus on our e-commerce and also move into brick and mortar retail. And that was also the time that we expanded to do our baking mixes line. So that's when we brought our our brownie mix on. And then subsequently over the past year, we've brought on our second upcycled ingredient, which is our oat milk flour, and then two more baking mixes, our sugar cookie mix and our oat chocolate chip cookie mix. So do you have any any other mixes uh, in development or any other products or SKUs that you guys are working on? We do. Yeah. So we're excited to expand in the baking mix aisles. So we have, um, we have a pancake mix that's in the, in the works as well as a couple of muffin mixes as well. And then we'll, we're going to be going back to that original cookie and um, we're going to bring a new ready to eat skew to join that chocolate chip cookie mix. Most, most likely something, uh, something in the peanut butter realm, not quite sure exactly what it's going to end up being yet, but um but excited to bring another another flavor of that ready to eat cookie to market too. Excellent. I would vote for a peanut butter. So yeah, <laughs> that's <okay>. my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like peanut butter is pretty popular. So all right. So um, as you're developing these these flavors, how do you think about you know sort of your customer research or or what are, what are you doing to to determine what you should be working on next? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So one of the things that we do, so we we utilize current customers that we have. So um, you know, customers that have either found us through e-commerce um, or or I guess pretty much e-commerce. Some sometimes our Amazon customers, um, and and really what we what we do is kind of do surveys or more in-depth conversations with folks to understand um, how to, to better, uh, you know, basically to understand either why they buy from us or if there's someone that's interested in our company, maybe is on our newsletter list under, but hasn't purchased, you know, understand why they haven't purchased. Um, and that helps us better um, determine our strategy for new products that we're developing and how we're building our own CPG brand. Um, we've also done a couple of like um, uh, consumer insights surveys. We've done one where we kind of had folks go through the process of purchasing a brownie mix, uh, utilizing the brownie mix, tasting it, and getting some feedback from how that process went. What would have been, you know, what was something that was uh, a challenge for, or would have been a hurdle, or what would they have liked to have seen? Um, we've done a more broader customer survey before we, um, it was right before we launched in a number of grocery stores. And so we were particularly interested at identifying who um, kind of our target customers were in that, in that area. And, and actually one of the surprising things that came out of that study was that, uh, or that survey, I should say, mm-hmm. um, was that there was a lot more importance placed on sustainability claims when people were making purchasing decisions than we had even hypothesized. And, and of course, here we are, you know, like blow, blowing the sustainability horn. I mean, that's that's what was why we're doing this. And we certainly have seen a lot of people like in, more interested in kind of the story behind their food and and making sure that it's it's more sustainable. But I was really 
I was really surprised. And of course, this is just a stated stated preference survey, right? We're not right. we're not actually looking at like revealed behavior, but but it was really interesting to see that particularly um, with the younger the younger folks, um, sustainability claims were. Um, noted as being just as important, if not more so than things like organic claims on packaging, which, you know, organic is a very strong certification. And that's something that drives a lot of purchasing uh, behavior. So that was something that was like, very exciting for us to see, but and and surprising, but also very exciting. Um, And it and it helped influence our own strategy when we were redesigning our our bags, because very early on when we when we entered into the consumer packaged goods space, um, we hypothesized that it would be better to have the sustainability and upcycling story be more of a double click, put it on the back of package, you know, lead lead purely with with taste on the front of the package, premium product taste. Right. And this survey actually made us rethink that. And, you know, certainly we want to lead with taste. It's food, you know, taste is king. We need to make sure that that's (laughs) that's first and foremost. But it actually made us bring our sustainability claim to the front of PAC um, because we did see that this is something that people are really thinking about when they're making decisions in the grocery store. Um, And this is really truly our differentiator in the space as well. Um, And so it was something that we realized deserved the the focus of the the front of the bag. Yeah. Yeah. And even just the first line on your website, you know, fighting yeah. <laughs> climate change has never been so delicious, right? Exactly. That's putting that sustainability claim front and center, like you're saying. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And so a couple of things I noticed uh, you've been getting some press, um, Boston Globe, um, San Francisco Chronicle. You have an article, a great article in uh, Fast Company. Yeah. Bon Appetit. How have these um, come about? And um, is there anything that you're, you're doing to, to reach out to journalists and, and get some press? I mean, I think um, I think it's a very interesting topic. It's definitely one that we've seen um, trending more and more. I mean, it, it's been funny just in the it's it's almost been about five years that I've been doing this. And when we first started, you know, it was like most of the folks that I would talk to, it was the first time that that they were hearing some of these statistics around food waste and, you know, the fact that 30% of the food that we produce goes to waste. Um, and in such a short time, I would say that a lot more people are familiar, at least generally with the concept of food waste and the fact that it's um, not a good thing, something that we want to solve or prevent. Um, And so, um, yeah, so I think that, I think that, um, I I think that there's been a lot of interest in, um, in food waste recently and what those solutions can be for, for solving food waste. And I think that that's, what's driven a lot of interest in telling, telling our story, um, about how we can, we can fix this piece of the food system. Um, but that being said, we also do (laughs) reach out to, to journalists as well, um, because we're excited about the story. So, um, when there's particularly something new that's happened, whether it's, um, you know, bringing our second upcycled ingredient to market or, um, or having a new, new product that we're developing or a new partnership that we have with someone, um, you know, we're, we're always, um, you know, reaching out to folks to tell that story too. And uh, yeah, what about some of these uh, wholesale and retail partnerships? Do you have any that you could tell us about? Yeah, I do. I do. So we actually have um, a new partnership that we're, this is kind of a a sneak peek of a new partnership that we're just about to 
just about to launch. So we are doing a joint new pro- new baking mix product with a, a company, a single origin spice company called Burlap and Barrel, which is, um, yeah, they're, they're a wonderful company that really focused on this um, sustainable fair trade sourcing. Um, we're all about sustainable ingredient sourcing. So um, kind of blending both of our uh, both of our approaches to sustainable supply chains and better supply chains in our food system. Um, we're utilizing their cinnamon in, um, in a new snickerdoodle cookie mix that we are going to be releasing just in time for Earth Day. So, um, so that'll be coming out probably in the next couple of weeks. Sounds great. And and what about, um, you know, wholesale or retail? Where, where can people find you, your product uh, today? So feel free to visit our website, renewalmill.com. We have a store locator on there. We're in about 170 markets or so, most of them concentrated in Northern California, which is um, obviously where we're based. Um, but we're also on many online platforms. So we're on Thrive Market. Uh, if you're in the New York City area, we're on Fresh Direct. Uh, we're on Good Eggs in the in the Bay Area, and then of course you can always find us on Amazon and and at our website renewalmill.com. Okay, excellent. And so just looking ahead a little bit um, with COVID numbers, hopefully you know moving in the right direction and things maybe returning back to normal uh, sooner rather than later. I think we're all we're all ready for that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what are what are your plans for the rest of 2021 um, and and just into the future? Yeah, so um, so we're very excited to be continuing to expand our our own product line. As I mentioned, um, we are going to be doing some more. You know, the Snickerdoodle is kind of kicking us off, but we're going to be doing a lot more limited edition. Um, more interesting and intricate flavors of baking mixes, which will be really exciting. Um, so, so look for those coming coming later this year. And then um, there's a few more products in the pipeline of other folks that are utilizing our ingredients that we're looking forward to seeing those products come to market and grow. So one of one of the companies that utilizes our organic Okara flour is Tia Lupita, and they have a, an Okara tortilla that actually will be launching at um, all of the Sprouts locations um, this coming coming in the next couple of months or so. So that's very exciting as well. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, so so lots of exciting things. And I think, you know, as you kind of alluded to, we're very excited to be moving back towards some sort of normalcy that will allow us to um, better better uh, connect with customers. So, you know, we've lost the opportunity, of course, of doing, um, you know, demos and being in grocery stores and talking to people and letting people try our stuff and hear our story. Um, so we're very excited to, to potentially have that um, to be able to do again as, as we move into the, the fall. All right. Well, let's move uh, just into the quick fire round. Um, okay. I've just got four questions here. Just want your, your, the first answer that comes to your mind. So, okay. All right. Uh, what's one tool or resource um, that you feel like you can't live without? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I would say <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like a, the basic answer would probably be something like, uh, you know, my computer, my phone. Um, I, let's see, something more specific as a tool or resource. Honestly, I'm going to go with Wikipedia on this one. I'm constantly having to, you know, we're wearing so many hats, doing so many things throughout the day. And it is a very easy way to quickly learn, um, learn what we need to know to answer some quick questions. Okay, good answer. Um, what is uh, one book that has helped you uh, in your in your journey? Let's see. 
I'm trying to think of, of one that has been, this is, I'm turning this not into a rapid fire question at all. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of one that's specific to, 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 to the renewal mill journey. Um, the, the most recent one that I can think of that was, that was really inspiring to read was actually, um, uh, I, I just read, um, Jane Goodall's book, Seeds of Hope, which was, which was really lovely. And I think, um, uh, just in general, I find her very inspiring, um, particularly this idea, you know, obviously she's in a, in a very different space than, than food, but this idea of being so passionate about what you do and passionate for something that's a greater good, um, I found really, really inspiring. So to, to my own journey in, in, um, with renewal mail. And that's great. And what's one piece of advice that you would give your 21 year old self? Oh, you know, I think I would say that, um, just to have a, like perspective on things that are perceived as, as failures. So I, I think one of the things that I've learned over the past 15 years or so is, is that, um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, kind of seeing challenges as more like helpful hands that are kind of leading you in a different direction or a better direction has been a, a really wonderful way to kind of restructure when things go badly. <laughs> um, and it, and it really helps me kind of, um, um, see things through a different, a different lens to think like, okay, this didn't work, but you know what, that's just a sign that, that there's another way to do this and back to the drawing board and let's brainstorm a little bit more and, um, and, you know, keep trying and keep experimenting. And that's the way to, to build something that, that truly is strong and is better. Okay. Good answer. And, um, who is uh, one person that you would love to take to lunch? I think that I would like to take you know, I'm going to stick with the sustainability theme here. Um, uh -huh. I would love to go to lunch with Rachel Carson. Um, that's a, another person that I've just found really inspiring. Um, and, and I think hearing her story of really starting the, the, the modern environmental movement would be just fascinating. Okay. That's great. Well, Claire, as we wrap up here, um, how would somebody um, get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. You can always reach me. Um, my email is Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E at renewalmill.com. Feel free to reach out. I'm almost always available. <laughs> and any uh, parting uh, words of advice for other people in the food space or in the physical product space that are grinding it out, uh, doing the yeah. best that they can? Any, any pieces of advice for them? You know, I would just say, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm still, I'm still learning too. So it, it feels kind of, um, funny to, to be giving advice, but, but one thing I would just say is, um, you know, really just to the extent that you can just bring your authentic self to what you're doing. Um, I think, you know, your, your passion, um, can really shine through, um, with your product and with your business. And, and that is, that's a really powerful um, piece of, of building a company and building, building products. That's great. Well, thank you, Claire. I um, appreciate it. Um, you've given so much of your time and, and um, we just love hearing about your journey and how you came to be where you are now. And I think that there's just a ton of uh, just nuggets of gold in this interview. So appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. I, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Thank you. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. 
To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Real quick before this episode starts, I want to ask you, are you still using spreadsheets to manage your inventory, suppliers, co-packers, and production? Unless you're a wizard with cells and formulas, you can only grow so much with spreadsheets. When you're selling on your website, in retail stores, in online marketplaces, and more, it gets hard to track your inventory levels. Stockouts become a regular occurrence and fulfilling orders keep you awake at night. Use Fiddle instead. Our software is built to help CPG businesses like yours scale more easily with constant insight into your inventory and production at all levels. Go to fiddle.io to learn more and schedule a personalized demo.